Hello, world. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. It's been a minute, and I have missed you all. I hope you have missed me as well. As I've mentioned on social media, it's been a bit of a busy season for me with this documentary that I'm producing on women in comedy, which is so cool. I can't wait for you guys to see it. But don't you worry, I did sneak away and find time to sit with the legend herself, Stephanie Elaine. You guys, this woman has produced some of my favorite movies, Hustle and Flow, Boys in the Hood, Dear White People. I just can't even, honestly. And even though, as you'll hear from the audio, I was battling a two-week-long sinus infection, it was worth every moment I got to spend with her. Like, I kind of want to be her when I grow up. She is raw. She is real. She is so authentically herself. We talk about motherhood. We talk about how John Singleton helped her rediscover her blackness and how she took a risk and sold her house to finance Hustle and Flow. Her passion and her hustle got me thinking. How far would I go for my dream? Could I ever bring myself to take a similar risk? And how far would you go for yours? I'm looking at you listeners in Mexico and Australia. I see you. Hit me up on Instagram at Carolina Gropa and tell me, how far would you go for your dream? Well, enough of me babbling. Let's dig in and hear from Miss Stephanie Elaine. I just want to say this is like a momentous occasion for me personally to be sitting with you in your house having this conversation. So thank you for welcoming me into your space. Mm-hmm. It's thank so personal. You for coming. Of yeah. course, of course. And I was telling you a little bit off mic about just me and the show and my goal with the show, my intention with this show. And like I really want Life with Kaka to be a place where the guests that I have on can feel comfortable and safe to talk about some stuff that isn't necessarily uh the fun parts of what we do, the sexy parts of what we do as producers, as women who have found parts are sexy. I don't know. People (laughs) people think it's real sexy. I mean, when you're taking a photo on a red carpet or you're at Sundance, it's, but that's all people see, right? Like I have this metaphor I've been using lately, which about this, this idea of a garden and everybody comes into your life and they're seeing your garden in full bloom. And they think it's always like that. And nobody's seeing the years of work and the weeds you've had to pull and the years where there was no no blooms, you know, and uh, my garden out there. And I, you have a beautiful garden. I get to look I at have, it. Have, um, vegetables, which teaches you a lot about producing. <laughs> In what way? Well, you have to plant the seeds. You have to tend it. You have to nurture it. You can't walk away for too long. You have to come back and you know test the soil, make sure that things are good and mm. ripe for the right kind of plant. Yeah. And uh, and then you have to have a lot of patience because it takes time. Yeah. And then you have to know when to pluck it from the vine. Mm. So how do you know? How do you personally know? <laughs> a lot of trial know? and error. That's how you know. That's how you know. Yeah. You just do it. Just do it. Well, I guess on that note, will you define a producer for me? <sighs> yeah. Well, I guess a producer is someone who produces content for film and television or whatever else medium there is. But what is producing in the true form of the word? Well, it's a lot like growing vegetables, you know? It's about, I think first, for me, it's about the material, the work, the script, the book, the idea, whatever that thing is, and really connecting to that. 
not as um, a commodity or something to be traded, but, but because you love it and because you want to see it grow and because you want to see it mature into what it can be, which is something, it's crazy, something that can last forever that you can share with the world. Yeah. Do you feel like all of the projects you've been fortunate enough to work on in your career fit that description? Let's see when you say work on, I mean, or produce yeah, support. Well, I know you've kind of had a hand in some yes, things that mm-hmm. I think I would say that. Absolutely. I would yeah. say that. And it, but, but that's, that's no accident because you have to care about the thing to make it so to make it reality. So it's hard to sort of like trip over and produce something. You know yeah. I, mean? <laughs> I just don't have in that way. Yeah. Okay. So take me back a little bit. Uh, you know, anybody who can Google you can kind of read through your bio real quick and see like all the amazing things you've done and sort of the trajectory of your career. But for the listeners, will you just catch us up on how you got to be here in okay. this couch in this moment succinctly? <laughs> okay, let's see. Well, uh, what's my timeline? Because then I can... I mean, to understand. when you started. And I, I really would love to know yeah. how you discovered this business. Um, you know, I've always loved to read. That's that's where it comes from. I just love to read. I read voraciously. I wrote. I was just the love stories. And then I made the connection between stories, between the book and the page and, and the screen with two books, The Godfather and The Exorcist. And you, there was something that I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know how you got from there to there. But I knew that the, there was a connection. And then I, um, you know, studied English, and I dropped out at USC, and I moved to Hawaii, and I fell in love. And then I decided I had to be a writer, because that's the thing that I identified as. Mm-hmm. So I... Um, I went to Europe, I went to Madrid for a little bit, and then I went to UC Santa Cruz, which had, at the time, and this is in the 80s, an incredible writing program. George Hitchcock, and like just like amazing, talented writers. All the, all those sort of older beat poets, mm. Ferlinghetti, like all those guys were still around up in there. And so I was a poetry major. And, um, but I was also a dancer, and I spent those years... Um, just dancing and reading and making movies because my my first husband uh, asked me to be in his movie in the co-ed naked uh, dance dressing room. (laughs) Um, And um, yeah, so I was just in the arts. I just, that's what I lived for. And then I graduated and I I followed my dance teacher, Donald Byrd, to CalArts to dance. And oh my God. Do you dance? I, yes. I used to dance when I was younger. It's the best. It's the best. It's the best. It's the best. And so I'm there. I'm there with all these kids because I'm older because I've graduated from college now. Yeah. And these kids are- Well, how old were you at this point? Okay. So um, probably 21, two. Okay. So still a baby. I'm a baby. Yeah. But I knew that I did, maybe I was 23. I knew that- I wanted to make money. Mm. <laughs> and a career in dance was not going to get I that. I knew that. Because yeah. I saw kids much better than me go to New York and make it. And, and making it, at that time, was like, you know, 200 bucks a week or something. I was yeah. like, okay, check, please. <laughs> I need to do something else. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know what. I still didn't know what. 
I didn't even know the jobs existed mm. that eventually got me. Here. Did that not knowing at that time scare you? Oh yeah, I was petrified. Okay, I was petrified. <laughs> I I was like, oh, I dropped out of there because I didn't have enough money. You know, I guess my dad was like, I'm not paying for you to go to dance school. So I was like, <laughs> okay. I moved uh, to San Francisco. I I wrote for the ballet magazine. I I danced. You know, whatever. And then I got pregnant mm, at 23. Yes. And I was like, oh my god, I'm going to have this baby. Mm. <laughs> I had nothing. I didn't have a place to live. My boyfriend was like, are you? Was younger. He was 20. He was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm going to have this baby. Um, I moved back into the room that I grew up in at my mother's house. And I took a job working for my dad, billing Medicare. And, um, and I think around then I did hear about a job called reading. I thought that's perfect. <laughs> I'm a reader. I like reading. Yeah, I love reading. Yeah. What else do you have to do? You know, you have to write a little you know, a little, little the coverage. book report. Yeah, <laughs> book <Perfect>. report. <laughs> it is a book report, yeah. So, but nobody would hire me. I'm pregnant. Now I'm like pregnant. I'm this black chick. I'm pregnant. I don't know anybody in the business. My uh, boyfriend, father of my eventually two children, and now ex-husband, um, was the only connection I had in the business. And he wasn't really in the business, but he was Jewish from the Valley and he knew a lot of people in the business. Mm. And so there was one guy who knew one guy. And I don't know, eventually what happened was I got a job at CAA reading books. I got a job reading books and I had the baby. That was my, that was my entrance into the business. You know, it was three days a week in Century City Sitting in a, a, like, it was like, it was so old fashioned. This is like, I think about it now, it's kind of like Mad Men. Like, <laughs> it was a, it was a group of readers in like a lounge area. And we were all just sitting there reading our books. And then when you finished, you got up and you went to the typing room and you sat down on a typewriter and you just rolled in your paper and typed up what the story was. And then you typed up your recommendation, mm. whether you thought it was a movie or not. And I thought that was the easiest job in the world. Oh, mm. my God. But then I saw these agents. And I was like, oh, so what's going on here? Mike Ovitz was running the joint. Mm. And um, even though, you know, they kept the readers on a different floor. It was very, it's very segregated. You know, it's very segregated. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, reading was easy and fun. And by then, um, I heard that you could actually get a real job reading at studios. And that job is story analyst. And... I just got the paper for the, you know, I heard about it. I did some research. It wasn't like that then. I had to make some calls. And you had to get into the union to get that job. You had to take a test and you had to um, pass the test. Mm. And somebody had to die on the roster for you to get the job. <laughs> and that's what happened. And I got the job. So you got the job. Were you ever like, okay, I'm here. I have this job. I'm still living at home. I'm assuming no, at this point. I had, okay, by the way, I, when, once, I had, once I decided I was having this baby and I was like in my old room for a month or two, I was like, okay, I got to get out of here. Yeah. So I rented an apartment. I had a studio apartment on 4th and Detroit right over here. Mm. 
And right around, because like, that's where I grew up, right around the corner from my mom. And um, my boyfriend had like run away, but he came back. And we had the baby. And he was also in the business. He was the location manager at mm. the time. And um, yeah, we were just raising this kid. And I was just sort of in this world of the executive suite, basically, which is what it was. I didn't really even know what it was, but that's what it was. Mm. And the next step up from reader was creative exec in that paradigm. So, um, but the thing is, the truth is that, you know, uh, my mother lived around the corner. Thank God. I never even moved far away from her. This is as far as I've ever lived from her right here <laughs> in the Valley. Um, without her, I don't know how I could have done it. Yeah. Because my boyfriend and husband, we, we married when my son was three. Um, and we were together for 10 years and had another son 10 years later. Um, and he's my bestie. I love him. He lives down the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got married here with his new wife. Oh, that's um, awesome. But, um, you know, what people don't see, because that's what you started this with, mm-hmm. is, I mean, first of all, I had a child before I really had a job in the business. And so that set me apart in so many ways because I couldn't really, first of all, I was a woman, I was a black woman, and I had a child. Mm. (laughs) Trifecta. (laughs) You know, and um, so I couldn't, I wasn't part of the boys club, I wasn't part of the Jewish club necessarily, even though my kid, even though I did have entree because of my husband, Mm -hmm. frankly. Um, But there was just a lot of... um, you know, day to day, how's this going to work? You know what I mean? Like who's picking him up? What, what's happening? What's the food? How's it going to work? Who's giving him a bath? I have to go to this other thing. You know, can you keep, it was a lot of, of negotiating, um, childcare and, um, you know, I really messed it up the first time because I spent way too much time working. Mm. And I, and, and my oldest son, who was, is an actor, is a born actor, was acting out, you know? He was <laughs> completely acting out. And I basically had to stop, I basically had to stop the sort of social component trying to fit in because as we know in this business, it's a social business. Mm-hmm. You have to be there. You have to be at those places. You have to be part of that. That's how, and it still works that way. Yeah. You know? How do you keep up with that then? Like, especially at that time, you have a young kid. You're, you're. Well, you like know, I said, I had my mother. You had I had mom, my yeah. I married him. I said, I have, I had Mitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I paid for help. You know, I had Yolanda who came every day and helped like, like, you can't do it alone. Yeah. You know? And so, obviously, having that support is what helped you sort of create the template for you to build on to the places that you were to get to eventually in your career. Oh, yeah. I could yeah. have done it. Oh, I don't know. Well, yeah. I would have been a really shitty mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You yeah. need that help. You need that help. Yeah. Okay. So, then you see this path and you're like an executive path. That's the path I want to go down. That's what they say. You know, you can be, you can leave the story department and go the first rung of this ladder 
And by then, the truth is, I'd, I'd been brought under the wing of Amy Pascal. Mm-hmm. And her recognizing my coverage and my ability to write notes, and she taught me how to write notes, and being in those rooms and sitting there watching her, that's really how I learned to go to that next level. Yeah. And then... You know, this is the late 80s. By then, she's she leaves Fox. She goes to um, Columbia with Dawn Steele. And this was the era of the badass bitches, I have to say. I know. Like, you know, it was fair, like Armani suits, padded shoulders, yes. pearls, a white, te- a white tank. There was a uniform. Yeah. We all <laughs> wore it. Um, Talk a little bit real quick about this idea of mentorship and sisterhood, because I, I know you've talked a lot about the support that you felt from Amy in your career, but everybody creates this image of what they think a mentor looks like or should be, or when they should get one or how they get one, or like as if there's some check boxes, you know what I mean? That you go through and you're like, and here's what this mentor needs to be to me. It's almost like a relationship where they're just looking for this perfect partner, this perfect mentor. And I often hear that that doesn't really exist. So I'm curious what, your perspective is on this idea of mentorship. I'm sure where you are in your career, a lot of people come to you now and they're like, be my mentor. And you're like, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know? Well, I, all I can say is that, um, without that type of, um, mentorship, it would be really hard to figure out how to do things because mm-hmm. you have to have that firsthand knowledge to, to, you have to witness it, you know? Um, but you can have a mentor as somebody you don't even know. You know, you can have a mentor, somebody that you study, that you look toward, that you pattern your moves after. Um, you can have a mentor who is um, a daily, you know, contact, or you can have a mentor who you talk to four times a year. It, 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 it is like a relationship, and all relationships are different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, People do always come and say, can you mentor me? And I always say to them, you know, I mentor through these programs like the Academy, the Producers Guild, the Writers Guild, the Women in Film, this and that. Because at this point, it's just, it's, you can imagine <laughs> I would yeah. be mentoring the world. And I love teaching and I love doing yeah. it, but I'm still working, you know. Right. And so you only have, have so much time. time. Yeah. You, you only, only have, have so, so much time. time. I mean, how many movies, how many TV shows are you going to make in your lifetime? Me personally? Yeah. As many as I can before yeah. I go. I yeah, mean. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but is that like a hundred? I don't think I so. I know. So that's what I'm <laughs> saying. You, you gotta keep busy. Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's this, this idea of prioritizing and boundaries is so important. And we talk about it a lot, especially as women who do have these other shades to who we are and to our identity and letting people in. And it, it's actually part of why I started the show is I'm still a very young up and coming producer, but I'm at a place in my career where I've done some stuff that's quite visible. So I get a lot of people hitting me up, wanting to pick my brain over coffee, wanting my advice Tell and my support. Your brain. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, I would love to, but I can only give so many of those a month, a year, because I need to have time for these other things I'm doing in my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this podcast and I'm going to have these conversations and then you can listen to it on your own time. And hopefully the the sort of guidance is similar, you know, and I can be a conduit to people like yourself who those people who are starting out and are a bit, you know, younger in their journey may not ever have access to that or feel like they don't. And they feel so far removed. And I'm trying to take what's 
all the way over there and just bring it a little bit more into focus to show the realities that it's like, it's all possible. It's just the step by step, brick by brick is how you build a bridge to where you're going, you know? So, but I interrupted your story. So Amy Pascal, she mentored you. She really made an impact on where you were going. And when you saw that this, this was a path you wanted to take being an executive. Yeah, because, well, actually, I had to step down financially because at the time I was making really good money as a story analyst because it's a union job. Then mm-hmm. you had to step down to take the, the, the like, it was like, I don't know, I was making $75,000, which was in that time, wow, I was okay, I'm okay. And then I had to go down to 50 to take that next level. On a salary probably, right? With yes, no overtime? on a salary with <laughs> yeah. no overtime, exactly. Yeah. And I remember people like, well, why would you do that? That's okay. Again, choices that you make mm-hmm. when you can see where you want to be. Yeah. You know, so yeah. then I'm in the then I'm in the big house now, you know, I'm sitting at the table. I'm at the I'm at the weekend reads, I'm at, you know, the the, the meetings and I got a real sense of territory and fear and backbiting mm. and you know the real deal and what know? was what was that like when you got there is it what you thought it would be no i was didn't. it worse <laughs> <laughs> yes because well part of the problem was is that at the time the studio unbeknownst to probably you know uh, at least me was undergoing um an auction for sale and so there was no real money flowing through the coffers to make things and so it was a, it was sort of a development situation where you mm. were just looking for things and you would spend money but you, they, nobody was freeing up any money okay and um so there was a lot of tension in the mm. room there's a lot of tension and then it was the merger of you know, Peter Goober's company came in mm-hmm. and that, you know, when John and Peter came in and yeah. there was Don, Don had got fired, I think. And then it was just, it was very amorphous. We were on this other lot in mm-hmm. Burbank with, with Warner Brothers. Yep. And um, all I was thinking about truly is, you know, reading, because that's what my specialty was. And I, I quickly understood that, you know, he who reads the most, she who reads the most reads, you know, has the last laugh. So mm. basically, I would read everything because I got caught one time, you know, on Weekend Read, you have your names, your initials behind the, uh, you're at a table, everybody brings stuff to the table they want on the Weekend Read. But you can't read everything on the Weekend Read. So you get assigned, five people read this, three people read that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And one day, Don asked me my opinion about something. And I was like, my, my initial wasn't there. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that wasn't me. And she kind of went off on me. And I sort of, black girl, went off on her. Mm. And people were like, oh, it was kind of a moment. And then she looked at me like, oh, okay, right. You wasn't, your name wasn't on there. I said, yeah, that's right. And then I read everything. And I made a point of telling people, I read everything by commenting on everything, you know, even mm. if my name wasn't there. How did you find the time to read everything and still be a mother? <clears throat> well, I was a reader, <laughs> you know. Like how, I mean? how fast can you read? You must well, be like, a <laughs> I mean, you, I would have to read like eight. Even stuff you don't, but like stuff you don't like, you know, sometimes it's such a, oh, it's such a dry, like. Slap. I mean, you do learn to sort of um, speed read through things mm, that are not you like. You just engaged, need to yeah. know the base. Like mm-hmm. once you know, I'm not recommending this. 
then you can like check in and see what happens. Mm. You know what I mean? Okay. It makes more sense. Um, I mean, sometimes I get sent scripts. I'm like, oof, it takes me like a month just to get through it. Then don't read it. That's, I know. That means you shouldn't read it. I know. But I'm like, I you know want to give notes or give feedback. It's young people. And I'm like, oh, I just... Tell them to put it on um, blacklist for yeah. five bucks and get their cut. Yeah, that's you know what, what I'm that's what I'm going to do. Starting because we we can't do that. Can't do it all. Yeah, um, but it was very impressive, I must say, because nobody else was doing it. Yeah, <laughs> well, it set the tone for you know who you are. Obviously, your work ethic. It so did. It toot did. your own horn, please, because to, to. you should. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and then at that same time, I was replacing myself in the story department because, of course, I was the only black person there. Mm. And I met John. John Singleton, yes, which and I that love. Really that story. changed my life. Like he, yeah. just, I re- just vividly, vividly recall him walking into my office. Yeah, before you knew. Oh, before I knew anything. Yeah, you, know. you just remembered this guy walking up. All hot, full of dreams, full of dreams. Yeah, all swag, all. Yeah, that that did it. And then I read that script, and then I was like, aha, this is it. This is why I'm here, Yeah, clearly. I rewatched Boys in the Hood recently to prepare for this, and I was like crying hysterically. And I watched it when I was younger, and I was like, oh, that was a good movie. But now as an older woman, (laughs) you know, with different perspectives in the world, like the, the... it just breaks your heart as like a future mother, you know, it's an all age. It's an all age. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. Yeah. Just what if it, what a vision so young to have had that, to have had that idea to get it on paper at that time. And then to all the stars for all the stars to align, right? Beautifully on paper, beautifully on paper, paper but then then he also got to make it right. He could have, it could have been like, well, studio is going to do this, but you can't direct. Like it could have been. And that's really how I learned to produce on boys in the hood. Yeah. Because he was so specific and so gangster straight about it that I had to fall in line and protect it. And that's how I understood that, you know, the voice of the of the artist, the voice of the creator, the voice of the director is so much better than a table full of knuckleheads giving comments, you yeah. know, which is usually how most movies are made. Right. And um, which is, you said this in another interview, which you said, you know, when you see a project that feels all over the place, it's because, yeah, there's like 80 voices in the room. There's exactly. not one singular vision. And it's why you love working with writer directors. Right. That's right. Because there is a vision, there is you know, a vision. and there that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then John changes your life. John changed my life. Changed everything. Changed everything. Changed yeah. everything. Um, on, in so many ways. I mean, in a way, which I don't think I've ever really said, it's like John reintroduced blackness into my life. How so? Because, you know, I'm from New Orleans. My whole family's from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. We're Creole. Mm. So, you know, that means that you're raised to really believe that you're special. <laughs> <laughs> you're white and you're black. You know, you're you get European both. and you're Native American. You're African and you're, you know. So, um, so that's already a head trip. But... But then I was raised in L.A. at LACMA, near LACMA, um, in the, uh, you know, 60s, 70s, and predominantly white. You know, all the the schools I went to, except for St. Mary's, was more black than I'd been accustomed to. 
and all my friends were black and my family, but, but, but in Hollywood, it was mostly white. And my husband was white, you know what I'm saying? And so then this, this, black, this blackness just showed up and reminded me that I was black. It was amazing. It was amazing because I was like, oh my God, of course. Like, of course I'm black. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I made this movie, Something New, a few years ago about, um, you know, Sanaa Latham falls in love with uh, Simon Baker. Hmm. And, you know, when you fall in love with somebody, you don't, you don't really see their skin color. After a while, you don't see their skin color. It's just who they are. But because we live in a racist America and because we're all indoctrinated with, with prejudice and with racism, it becomes apparent that you'll never understand me in a way yeah. that a black person can. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that was very, very profound, and um, and I, you know, just invested everything in it because, also because, clearly there was not enough representation mm. of these stories, yeah. you know, and they are just as powerful, if not more, because I think they crack open your heart. I think they make you see things from a different perspective as much as you can. Right. And that, that is the power of film. That's Otherwise, what are, what are we doing? You know? Exactly. Yes. And somebody, I was just listening to somebody said, the power of film, the power of film is stronger than the power of dialogue. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Well, so, yeah, it's, it's a visual story. Yeah. You can see it. You can experience it in the safety of a theater or in your home and you can be immersed in a world that you will never know otherwise. You know, I, I interviewed somebody uh, who ran production at Warner Brothers for many years and he said that the greatest American export we have are our stories. Mm-hmm. The, the way that cinema started and yes, of course, there's everything that happened in Europe, but but we have always had our finger on the pulse and everywhere else in the world it's changing that. a little bit, but it still follows We're that. We're seeing serious damage, though, on the world stage right now. I mean, my lovely healer, TJ, is from South Korea. And he was like, I think, he told me today, he said, I think there's more welfare in Korea than there is here. You know, there's more concern about the poor and the disenfranchised. Like, yeah. oh, how do we become that? Anyway. We digress. We digress. Um, God, I have so many questions for you. Like, I don't okay, even know. So, but, but John, John Singleton and how I'm like checking off my list of the millions of things to talk to you about. But touching back upon this idea of being a young mother and sustaining a career at the beginning of your career, at, you were so young. Like, how did you manage that? Did you have your moments where you were like, I can't do this? This isn't worth it. Being a mother is more important to me than my professional identity. Did those identities ever conflict? It, well, I was going to say no. But then, no, I told you there was a moment when my son was eight when I walked into his room and um, there was water on the floor. And I was like, that's weird. It didn't rain. What is that? And I got down on it. I smelled it. I was like, it's piss. Mm. And he just stood there looking at me with these like eyes. <laughs> and I was like, you pissed on the floor. Her. I've got to clean it up. 
you know, and he was like, nah, and he ran out of the house. He was naked, too, and he ran out of the house. And I had just gotten out of the shower, and I had my robe, and I was running down the hall because he was running on the street now like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I ran, I ran, I ran, and I grabbed him, and I just held him, and I was like, oh, my God, he's pissed off, you know, obviously. Mm. And then it was like that. I just decided I'm not doing any, you know, breakfast. I'm not doing any dinner. I'm, I will only do lunch. You know, I'll leave in, I'll leave in the morning. <laughs> I'll come back in the night. Like, that's what you have to do when you have kids. Mm. And sure, I had somebody there who'd be waiting for me. But I was like, no, they don't want that. They want you. They want you. You know, that's so they need, yeah. I basically... I said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to focus on the work, you know, because it is, like I said, it is a social network. Yeah. And I really didn't have the, and by the way, nobody else had kids either. So, you know, I would bring, I would bring Wade with me everywhere. He would introduce me around because that's the kind of kid he was. But um, yeah, I had to make a choice. And so the, yeah, I just focused on the work. Yeah. Was that hard? To make that it choice. wasn't hard because when I saw his face, it wasn't hard. Mm. It was not hard. But it made my trafficking in Hollywood harder, I think. Yeah. But then you still found a way, which I love. You still found a way, you know? And I think that's the the part of the journey that people don't see is that you can have all of these presets to your path and then you still can find a way no matter what circumstances you're in if if the want is big enough right it's if the want is bigger than the conflict that's like every story you find a way to persevere and right try all the different things and so you know but you never felt like your professional identity was all you had or that it defined you in some way i never felt that because i was never that i was mother before i was that so I didn't, I didn't have that persona. Do you think if, if you had kids later, after you had had more success, would that have flipped that in your head somehow? I don't think so. Because I'm, you know, I'm successful, but I'm not crazy ambitious. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I'm ambitious for my projects. I'm ambitious for changing the world. I'm ambitious for a lot of things, but I'm not ambitious like I have to make so much money and I have to run a studio. I don't have that in me. You know what I mean? And I saw that because when I um, I stayed at the studio, starting with John, and we made you know we made movies, and then I met Robert Rodriguez, and then we made a couple movies, and Darnell Martin, and it was lovely because. I literally had my own mini studio inside the big studio. Yeah. And I didn't have to deal with anybody's shitty projects. It was just mine. And they were all under such a low budget compared to everybody else that they just let me do. And that that was really my training as a producer, you know, just trying to get those voices out. Um, And and then and then I wanted another baby. And then I was like, okay, because that's the thing. I was always like. This is what I do. It's not who I am. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's what I do, but it's not who I am. <laughs> I don't know how to explain. No, it, I, I get know? that. I think I asked that question. It's more of like a personal question because I, where I'm at in my career, you know, I have not had children. I have not had those 
benchmarks in life. And so, so much of my identity, especially because I am an immigrant, right? My parents came to this country when I was young. I was nine years old. I've had all the hurdles sort of put upon me to get to where I am and to get to be in a place today where I want to work hard and do right by my parents and I want to persevere and achieve my dreams. And so, so much of my 20s were focused on that. And all I thought about and all I cared about was my professional identity and making it and getting to those Mm. markers I had set for myself. And now that I'm in my 30s, I'm reflecting on what is important to me Mm -hmm. and the priorities. And sometimes I think because I didn't make that choice when I was younger to have a kid younger and then just figure it out in a way it's a little harder now because Mm -hmm. there's so much momentum that Mm -hmm. you're like, how do I stop? How do I stop? Mm -hmm. And then if you stop, how do you get back on the, on the roller coaster? You know? Well, I will tell you this about the roller coaster. You just double dutch, double dutch yourself back on. Like Mm -hmm. it keeps going without you, but then you just go back in. Yeah. It's not like the doors closed. Right. At all. Because most of the same people are still there. Probably moved to different places. Yeah. The job's still the same. Yeah. You know, identifying content and shepherding it to its awesome end. And um, so don't worry about that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. Work in progress. I mean, it is. And that's the, the, the thing I think a lot of people who are not inside the business realize it, that it's such a small industry. And I often wonder why that is because there's so many freaking people in LA yet you off, you run into the same people who, I, I don't know if it's because I like, I often heard that it's like, okay, if you take all of the SAG members, only like 10% of them are actually working. So those are the people you keep running into time right. and time again. Right? right. And I feel like the same can be said for, for producers right. and for everybody yeah. in this no, tier. It's small. It's, it's small, small because the people that are actually doing it, doing it, yeah are a small pool of people. This is so interesting because it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell's books. It's Mm. obvious, but, but even at the Academy at women in film at any of these organizations, there's only a handful of women doing, doing the work, you know, even though there's everybody else there, it's crazy. It's so, and, and it is the, what do you call it? You know, type a go get them. The ones that have that drive and that ambition that are making it happen. Yep. Time and time again, you'll run up up against the same people, which is why I always say who you are in your professional life should never differ from who you are in your personal life. Your integrity, your authenticity is the only thing about you that is intrinsically yours, right? And if you're going to run into these people time and time again in different levels of your career, be a good person. Be a person who values those things above all else. Because I think there is this myth and misconception about producers that you have to be sort of like cutthroat and you got to like step on people to get where you're going, no, you know? know? And there Why are do people think, I don't that? know. People think that and that there are those people out there to, because they have a different agenda. They have a different intention. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to make the money. They're just trying to make the 18th version of that franchise. I don't know what they're about, but I think it creates this misconception of the the realities of the lifestyle of what it takes to be a person who cares so much about something, right? Where it'll take four years to get something made, right. which brings me to Hustle and Flow and how that took you guys four years to put it all together, if I'm not mistaken. And my next question, which is in those four years how did you stay motivated and keeping your eye on the prize? Because 
people can look at the end result and think it all came together so quickly. You had John Singleton, no, you had all these things, no, you know. I had to sell my house. You sold your house, so like, <laughs> damn, like talk I about that. That's some real shit, you know. I couldn't manage the note and keep the dream alive. To be honest, you know what I mean. And, yeah, and also because I, I am. A very, I would say, I follow my gut kind of person. Um, and I, it was a crazy time in my life. It was a crazy time in my life. It was between marriages. And, um, and I had my two sons. And um, yeah, it was pretty wild. But, but the point was, I figured out that if I, um, if I woke up tomorrow, and I was dead, what was gonna happen? Like, what did I have, you mm -hmm. know? I, I had this beautiful house in Hancock Park, which I had spent so much money on, like stupid light fixtures and crazy <laughs> stuff. Oh my God, I wish I had that money now. Um, and I got really sick. I had like a um, kidney infection that went undiagnosed and I was literally dying. And I laid there and I had that feeling like, I don't want any of this stuff. I don't care about it. It doesn't matter to me. What do I care about? I care about my kids and I care about making good work, you know? And so I got better and I... Um, Talk about that for a second because people can look at your life from the outside and say, oh, she made it. You know, she's got the career. She's got the house at Hancock Park. She's got all of the things that you're supposed to aspire to, yet you still woke up and you thought like in hustle and flow, is this it? Is this all there is? You know, is this all there is for me? Is this all I have to offer? I like that movie so much. Yeah. You I said that in one of your interviews. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I just, I forgot it then. Yeah. 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 Is this it for me? That's kind of how and I And I feel like that, you know, every other week, yeah. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so Man, it's hard out there. It's hard out there for a producer. <laughs> for a producer. It's hard out there. Yeah. yeah. No, it was... It was, I, I remember, okay, you want to go dark. I remember laying in bed going, what have I done? Why did I sell my last house to get this bigger house? Why did I break up with my husband? Why, you know, it was just like, oh, I remember there were so many dark nights where I was like, yeah, this is bad. Oh, I know. But it was exacerbated by the fact that I made a movie that did not do well. Mm. That, it was like my first stumble, you know, in terms of, and I thought, oh, and I can't even figure that out. You know, it was just a yeah. real crisis of faith. And, um, you know, I think the thing that got me through was you just, I gotta just dust off and get back up. You know, I had... I had my kids to take care of. I had, yeah. I, I had to do shit. And so I went to my kids and I said, look, I'm going to sell this house. I'm like, we're going to go back to an apartment. You know, you guys cool with that? And they're like, yeah. And they were, they were so cool. Cause we went from really, really well appointed luxury to kind of a crummy duplex back in the same neighborhood. And, um, and then I read hustle and flow. Mm. And I was like, boom, this, this is it. it. And then it and then it was sort of like actually actually no, I must have read it before. I, I must have read it. I'm taking that back. I read it before because then I was like, all I want to do is make good stuff. And if I sold the house, I would have money to make the movie because this was the digital revolution. Mm -hmm. Film was almost over. Yeah. And then I called John and I said, Do you want to go in Habsies with me? 
and we'll make this movie for like $500,000. And then it took him three months to read the script. And then he called and says, I'm making this movie for $500,000. We're going to make this movie for $8 million. It's a great movie. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, okay. And then we did spend another two years looking for that money. And so he yeah. finally just said, okay, fine. I'm just going to write the check. But for us to be nimble, and I think this is really important for young producers to know that you could get a job, you could make a movie and make a little money. Do not don't 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 up your living style just yet, you know, because the more nimble you are, the more you can back projects that you love. Mm -hmm. And that was a really good lesson for me. Um, and I'm glad I learned it then because. I, I went back to that apartment. I made the movie. I actually made money on that movie. And, but I was like, yeah, no, I'm good. I had, I had gotten rid of so much stuff. Stuff. Ugh. It was amazing. I got rid of so much stuff. I felt the weight of the stuff off of me. I felt like the, I was creatively it's the real deal. Juju was the, happening. Oh, I believe it 100%. It was good. I met my husband. You know, I, I, I was getting movies made that I loved and that were my movies, you know. So I think it's really important. I, I want to do it again. I'm about to do it again. Just go real nimble. I like that. What does Stephanie Elaine do to dust herself off? What's that? It was dancing and cooking because I quit. I, I'd gotten a job. Um, you know, I left the studio. I went to work for Henson, mm -hmm. which is just a lost chapter. And that's just a whole thing on its own, which I refuse to talk about. And I'm legally not allowed to talk about it. But I know that it was really hard on you. It was really hard. And I want to talk and, about that And hard. then I was, that's when I jumped off. And I was like, I'm done. Like, yeah. I don't, it's, it doesn't matter. I'm done. I had, I had some money then that I didn't have to work, which is how you're able to say you're done, I guess. <laughs> and, um... I said, what do I love the most? I was like, dancing. That's what I love the most, you know, dancing and writing. I started writing again. Um, and my son was 16 and we went to dance classes and we, oh, it was so hot. Oh, it was so great. We did video <laughs> because I had done, you know, ballet and modern, but now we were doing like video ho dance. It was oh, so fun. So fun. Oh my God. Last time I took a hip hop class, yeah, by the way, yeah. like it's been so long. I got like whiplash. I had to take like a minute because I'm just out of shape for no. all the, the cool stuff the kids are doing. It was it's hot mess. so cool. <laughs> there's a class, there's a beginning class over at Millennial. That yeah, that's like the to one take. I took. Oh, I took oh, the really? beginner hip hop class oh, yeah, yeah. and it had been like a decade and I was yeah. like, ooh, I no, cannot I'm gonna hang. Keep, dude, I'm going to keep going. It's so fun. It's, it's so fun. good for you. I need to get back into anyway, it. Anyway, yeah. I was going like two, three times, four times a week for a long time. I was looking great. I was being with, I was being a real mom. I was there. I was cooking. I was, it was great. It was great. And then I got kind of bored. Mm. <laughs> and then I got a call and somebody said, hey, do you want to work for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I read Hustle and Flow. And then that's when everything yeah. sort of turned around. Well, you talked about how your time at Jim Henson was not necessarily the right fit for you as a person, as a producer, but how important that experience was to align with who you were and who you wanted to become. And there was a quote that you said in one of your other interviews that you said, um, you were trying to marry who you thought you should be with who you were. And who was that? Well, at the time, what I meant from that comment was, it's so funny, what I meant was that I was, I was, um, I was not at the studio anymore. I wasn't doing the sort of urban movies. I was, I had another baby. I was trying to be this other person. I was trying to be 
the family person. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't. And so everything I brought to that was crazy. Like, you know, Kermit singing Brick House. Or, yeah. You know, Elmo being tortured by Mandy Patinkin of all people. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just made the wrong choices thinking I was, I, I, it was like the classic thing you should never do, which is like presume to know your audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, just know yourself. Mm, to thine, thine own self be true. Yes. Ugh, so true. So, but when you met your second husband, prior to that, you have been dating. You have been also trying to find time to be a mom and like have a career and also meet someone. Can you talk a little bit about that being a single mom in LA and trying to find a partner? Yeah. I mean, luckily I, I told you my ex-husband's awesome and Mm -hmm. he was, he's always been around. And so we went from trading the kids back and forth every night for several years to a more manageable, like, I forget what they call it, two, five, three. I don't forget. There's like a thing where you get a weekend and then you have three days and then you drop them and then they have the weekend. and three. Anyway, where I, all of a sudden I had like five days off. This is when I went a little crazy, um, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I was 40 hanging out with like, you know, kids that were in there. Yeah. Did you ever feel this whole idea of ageism? Were you ever like, oh, no, I'm 40. I'm this. You still look good. No, no, no. I looked. saw that dancing. It was the dancing. No, I I was you never get caught up in all of that. Like, oh, you got to do this by this age and I'm here and thus I shouldn't and this and that. Like you never get caught up in that narrative. Mm -mm. Good. I need to take a page out of your book. (laughs) No, because I'd already done things cockamamie from the beginning. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I just had blown that up. (laughs) I couldn't chase that. Yeah. Um, But uh, no, it was fun. It was fun. I dated some guys. I traveled with my um, ex-husband's sister all over the world. We had some really great shows. I got tattooed in Tahiti and, you know, it was, I like that. It was a good wanderlust. It was a good walkabout. Um, and, um, and then it was, and then it was over. Yeah. And then this gorgeous man walked into my life and I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I could do that again. And we were married within six months. That's amazing. And you have a kid with him as well, a child. I don't have a kid. He brought a kid. He ah. brought his daughter. He okay. brought his daughter and I brought my sons. Got it. I love that. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, part of your journey that I think people don't no- normally ask you about, you know, just that other part of you. Because so much of those experiences inform your taste and what you look for and the, the things that excite you creatively as a producer. So I think it's important to talk about. Okay, so... Hustle and Flow wins an Oscar. And uh, it wasn't Best Picture. It was the original song. But again, perception. People think, oh, you win an Oscar and then this this happens. Do you think that's true? No. Every, everybody who wins an Oscar. No, you know how it goes. Look, you look at uh, Lugasa Jr. I mean, never worked again, pretty much. Or... or, or um, Adrian Brody from, mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's kind of a love, a love curse thing. Um, but that was fun. It was fun. It was right that it won because it was the, because the song should be the thing that is most integrated into the movie. And it was, it was, mm-hmm. um, 
But yeah, I mean, look, when you want to make movies about people of color and women and people who are underrepresented, it never gets easy. Mm-hmm. So it, it hasn't, gets easy. It hasn't no. gotten easier no. at all? No, mm-hmm. not at all. I mean, look... The 90s was prolific because there was like, a, there was literally, there were still movies, there was still DVD. There's a lot of reasons to make a lot of movies of, you know, especially black movies. And then in the aughts, it was all gone. And now we're kind of at a renaissance because there's so many different platforms, so many different outlets and so many different voices that they're not just confined to comedy or urban. That right. It's you know, it's queer, it's, 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 it's disabled. It's, it's everything. Like yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. And, but you know, we're in a boom now and what happens with a boom is contraction after boom is contraction. So this is a great time to be making content. I want to make as much as, as I can from yeah. my point of view. And, but you know, it's not gonna last forever. Right. It always goes away. What do you think or is next into whatever the next, the cycle is? You what know? do you think is next? I mean, we're we're in it now for a while with the streaming platforms, yeah. You know, and so, uh, and and I just I just don't know how much how much money is going to be out there to just continue to make the sort of um, amount of content that's being made. You know, yeah. I'm rewatching Fleabag, which is so oh, good. It's amazing. Oh, oh my god, it's so good. Yeah so good it's incredible that there there is a time in the space for stories like that to get made i feel like 20 years ago i don't know i don't know if that no. kind of show would have had a place in no. the in the marketplace or anything like atlanta oh. or, yeah yeah so when you sold your house back, backing up to when you sold your house mm-hmm. you started homegrown which is your company mm-hmm. what was that time like making that leap and deciding that you were going to somehow finance this company. I don't know how you financed it if you went and got other money or if it was just your money, but making that leap, like you said, I know you, we talked a little bit about the transition, but then making that decision of like, all right, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do next. And well, I have this gift, which is once I decide I'm a Scorpio. So what? I, when's your birthday? October 30th. Oh, it's coming up. Yeah. Okay. I'm a what, Scorpio too. That's oh, why. Are, what? November? My last day, November 21st. Oh. Once I decide it's over. Like I don't, I just wiped the slate. I'm done, you know? Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, here's the new era. What do we, you know, let me, let me search for the thing that I'm going to get excited about. Yeah. And um, yeah, I kind of never looked back except for then that's what I did. And, you know, it was good. It was a good run. It was Hustle and Flow. It was Black Snake Moan. It was something new. And then I made this other movie, which never got released, even though it was pretty good. And then, and then it was like, they weren't making, I couldn't make any movies. It was done. It was like dry again. Mm. And to be fair, I had got married and, you know, I moved into my husband's house and, you know, he does okay. So I wasn't really trying that hard. You know what I mean? It was like the first time in my life I was like, oof. You got to slow down for a minute. Take a little nap. (laughs) What's that like? (laughs) I did. It was awesome. But, you know, I did that for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, like, you don't have product because Mm. you have to plant the seeds and watch them grow, you Mm -hmm, know? mm -hmm. So I was like, oof, damn. Now now what am I going to do? And then 
because I've been on the boards of a lot of these organizations, I came to understand that the film festival needed a director. Mm-hmm. LA Film Festival. Yeah. I was like, I can do that. 2011. Mm, I can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did. And then I jumped in. And I was like, whoa, this is very different. Very different world. I'm convinced that, you know, um, uh, there's a very funny series or movie about film festival people because (laughs) they they are a particular type. Special breed. Special. (laughs) So special. They're like so steeped in story. They're so special. Um, But that was really interesting and I really saw something that needed to happen, which is we needed to shine the spotlight on women and people of color. And so that's what I did. And it was actually one of the first festivals to start quoting, like how many films are made by women. And, you know, cause I remember when they did that, they were like, how dare you reduce it to a stat? And I was like, <laughs> how dare you not, sir? You yeah. Know? Um, yes. It counts. It counts. And yeah. there's methodology to, um, you know, determining what are the best of the best films. Mm. And, um, so it was great. And I worked with this wonderful woman, Roya Rastigar, who was professor of, you know, history of consciousness and specialized in festivals. And it was just a really great opportunity to um, flex a different, a different muscle. And I uh, did it for five years and we became profitable. It was crazy. Like we turned it around. And, and I also think we gave LA like a, like something to be proud of. And also LA filmmakers to like have their, you know, we go to Sundance, who's there, not your neighbor, not your cousin, you know what I mean? It's like a great hometown spot. And um, so that was good. But then the whole time I was still producing the real fun I had with uh, Tina Gordon on people's um, Mm. shooting that in Connecticut in the winter. It was so fun. We had a really good time. And, um, and then Dear White People. Dear White People. Yeah. And how did that come to you? Well, Justin was my publicist on something new. And he He was all, at Paramount at the time, right? Or he was hey. at Focus. Oh, okay. He was at Paramount before, I think. He was at Focus. And he um he had always just been talking to me about this movie he was gonna make and I'd read various versions of it throughout the years. And then he went and made his little short and my assistant at the time, Mel, saw it and she said, Do you did you see this? And I was like, Oh shit, I better call him. And I did, and he had the script, and I was like, how can I help? And he said, help me get it made. And I said, okay. And what did he, what did he mean by that? Did he want financing with help? He or whatever. He wanted my, my blessing. He wanted money. He wanted whatever. And I said to him, you know what? I can, produ- I can produce it. Like, I can't just help you. Like, I can't do that anymore. So he was like, great. Then Gina's movie came around, um, mm-hmm. and I had to do that. It was literally two movies going at the same time. I brought on Effie yep. to do it. And she was there with them. And um, yeah. And so then, then we turned in a TV show and season four is about to start. Amazing. I was at Sundance the year Dear White People premiered. Oh, uh, really? yeah. It's actually the only Sundance I've actually attended and gotten to see all like a bunch of movies. Oh, really? I had never been to Sundance and I went as a volunteer. Cause I was like, I just want to get access. Right. And that was like the year I met Ava. It was like right before she was about to blow up right. before they announced Selma and stuff. And, um, and I remember seeing that movie and it, for me, it was like a game changer. I think for a lot of people, the the way that that story was told was just so brilliant. The genius of it, the poetry of, of Justin's vision. Um, it was just such a, 
inspiring time to have been at Sundance at that time. I think I got lucky with that being my first experience and everything that came after and the way that people of color and minorities and women and Lena and all these people kind of blew up after that time it was just really special. Mm-hmm. So I feel very like mm-hmm. lucky that I got to just be in the ether of seeing it all happen, you know? So now what are you up to next? I mean, you said in your email that there's been some stuff, but I don't know what stuff and if it's good stuff that you want to talk about. Well, lately what's been happening is um, we've got some really good movies that we're really close on. Um, I made a decision a little over a year ago that um, that I wasn't going to go back to Sundance because I really needed to um, sort of up the, the scope of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say. And um, so that took a lot of planting, a lot of nurturing, a lot of watering. And those are just about ready to get plucked. Um, all women of color stories. Oh, you know, I love that. Shirley Chisholm. It's uh, Sylvia Robinson who recorded Rapper's Delight. Wow. There's just so many good stories left to tell. You know? Yeah. So I'm excited because we've been spending the last, also the last year and a half, really learning the TV business. Um, apart from white people we set up another show at the peacock so we're working on that and um you know hopefully i'm gonna sign some kind of tv deal so i can really dive in and really do a major push in that direction because i feel like now i've sort of got got a handle Mm -hmm. on it now Um, you feel like you have a handle now finally finally. (laughs) exactly finally how many years later what, 30 years? And How many 30 years? years. Yeah. About 30 years. Well, actually, my son is 34. So, 34. 34. So, it yeah. takes a minute. Takes a while. Yeah. Take time, though. Smell the roses. Travel. Taking the kids to uh, Hawaii for Christmas just to hang, just to have that special yeah. time. Yeah. What do you think creates career longevity? I think passion for what you do. You know, you gotta, you gotta want to do it. It's too hard. Mm. If you can do something else, do it. You know, it's too, it's too hard and it's too amorphous in many ways. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I do. <laughs> you, you're, you're conjuring up something from nothing. All the time. All the time. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to really, um, you know, be into magic and really trust that, you can make it so and that's it's i think people don't realize about producers that there's got to be a lot of self um determination a lot of um just self-worth in that you believe you can conjure things you know gotta gotta be a dreamer right you have to be a dreamer but it's 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 more than dreaming because you really do, because you could be a dreamer and just be happy with dreaming. Daydreaming, yeah. But you're not a producer unless you produce. And so it's like a combination of being a dreamer and also just like a badass go-getter. Yeah. Because that's how you make the dream reality. Yeah, execute the dream. That's what you got to do. Has there been, in your 34 years, a challenge for you personally that's come up time and time again? Maybe like a cycle that you've gone through in your own journey or in your own sort of like a struggle that you've had that maybe has repeated itself time and time again. Has that ever come up for you? I think if anything that I always still work on is um, 
I want to say caring too much, not realizing that like not everything has to be as it should be, and just sort of relaxing into the 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 energy that that's gotten you there and that's going to get you through it. You know? Yeah, I do know. <laughs> I struggle with it as well. It's hard not to feel like I think because I've grown up in this age of social media and there's so much all the time, what everybody else is doing, you can see it in your face, whether or not you want it. You're seeing their press releases for their show that's getting made or this thing that just sold or that thing that's like, sometimes you can't keep up with all of it. Uh, as an independent producer, as somebody who's like on that grind, you know, it does feel often like, how do I sustain the dream, executing the dream and still have these other parts of my life that I want to develop, like a family and these other goals, you know, that are also important that inform your identity as a producer. Like, how do you manage it all? Um, I think this industry loves to make you feel like you're never enough, like you're never doing enough. Like, oh, you're just doing one thing. Oh, you finished that thing yesterday. You don't have your next thing. It's like, you can never stop and smell the roses. You know, it's not um, structured for that. So you really have to have the discipline to make that something that is important to you to, to stop and look back and acknowledge and have the gratitude of where the path has been taking you. Right. Um, so that's like a monologue, a little soliloquy of my own journey. But, but that's why I look to people like you who, who've been here and I've been in LA 13 years producing for a decade. Like I'm still in the infancy, but I'm afraid of looking back and thinking, oh, I well, should have done that. I will say. I think the other secret to longevity in this business is, is being flexible. Like, you know, you might want to go out for a studio job. You know, you might want to um, take a different look for a year or two just to see what it looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes you have to, you know, sometimes like, oh, shit, I need medical insurance because yeah. I want to have a baby. So I better like take this job like that's what Mel did. You know, she 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 worked as an assistant for five years to get that medical coverage. You know what I mean? Um and that's okay too, because then another door opens that you never would have seen before, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that also sometimes independent producers feel like, and I think it's rightly felt that, you know, we do it on our own. We're out here. We don't have the, you know, support of the studio. And, and but sometimes that's like a badge just for show in, in some ways, you know what I mean? Because you don't, you have so many skills, you don't, you don't have to just take the rocky road all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take, get on the bike for a little bit. You yeah. Know, just and cruise for a minute. Cruise for a minute and yeah. go, okay, okay, okay. That's good. That's good. And to dump the bike and get back on the trail, you know? And I think that is the story of many of the most successful producers where they reinvent themselves. They try something different for a minute, like Paula Wagner, you know, she was an agent and then she ran MGM and then now she's an independent producer. And it's just like where, what your needs are, you know, and what's available and how open you are. Very good. Very good advice. I got got my therapy session. (laughs) Um, What do you love about what you do? What do you love about producing Mm, there's so much I love about it. I mean, 
I love the process. You know, I love the journey. I love pitching. I love I love the script. I love casting. I love how much it's going to cost. I love where we're going to do it. I love how we're going to do it. I love doing it. I love I love doing it probably the least amount now. I will I just stop and physical that. production. Yeah. yeah. Just grind, it's rough. you know. And I was just saying to TJ this morning, why is it that we go to work at 7 a.m. and then at six hours later take a lunch break and then come back and have another day ahead of us. That's crazy. I want to do it like Clint does it. I want to <laughs> do like eight-hour days, 10-hour days mm. max. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's so upsetting. That's Okay, so then I like the editing and then I really like the mixing and the sweetening and the music. And, um, and then I like to watch people watch it. The whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> the whole Except, thing. as I said, not standing out in the rain at four in the morning. That yeah. I don't like as much. Anymore. No. Last question for you. Okay. What is um, your legacy that you'd like to leave behind? Mm. Wow, nobody's asked me that. I guess those are the kind of questions you get mm. once you get a certain age. Um, you know, I think my legacy would be that I, um, I brought a lot of voices to the party. Well, I think you've definitely done that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank this you is for asking them. Of course. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> this has been such an honor. So thank you again for having me in your home. Thanks for coming. Of course. And that's this week's episode of the show. I would love to hear what you think. Hit me up at Carolina Gropa. And hey, if you don't already, please like, rate, subscribe, review, tell a friend, tag a friend, and tell me, what do you want more of? I'm so grateful to you for doing this life thing with me. Thank you for tuning in week after week. How about we meet here again sometime soon? Until then, beijos.